Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, good morning, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 160. And uh, today we are going to talk about hydroponics. And we're going to talk about hydroponics from two macro levels. We're going to talk about hydroponics from a standpoint of pump-driven, and we're going to talk about it from the standpoint of cracky, which means no pump. Now, there's actually dozens of permutations and types of hydroponics. There's something called NFT, which is nutrient film technique, not anything to do with cryptocurrency, right? Um, there's ebb and flow or flood and drain. There's, there's dozens of techniques within the techniques. But I just want to start out today with helping you get your mind right around these from this macro level. Either there's a pump or there's not a pump. Now, why would we want a pump in the first place? Why don't we just grow plants in water if that's what hydroponics is all about? More accurately, water with mixed nutrient into it. Why do we need a pump in the first place? And the main reason is <clears throat> if we put plants in water, and they can't get enough oxygen. And over time, we start having less and less dissolved oxygen in the water, less available O2. The plant will begin to have its roots rot, and it will die. And if you've ever looked at a, a hydroponic or aquaponic system where the roots are not getting enough oxygen, they are. You, you don't have to really know what you're doing to look at that and go, I don't know a lot, but I know that doesn't look healthy. And when you look at roots that are getting enough oxygen, you don't have to know a lot to look at that and go, I don't know a lot, but I know that's healthy. Healthy roots are bright white, unless they happen to be a plant that grows a different color root. You know, Healthy roots look healthy. Just like you can usually look at soil and go, that's probably good soil to grow in, and that looks like denuded crap. Like You don't have to be a genius farmer to look at sand and go, probably not the most fertile environment to grow stuff in. And when you look at deep black, rich soil, you feel it, you smell it, you know. Okay, so that that's the why. we got to get oxygen to the roots. And I think in deciding which one's right for you, and we go into that world of it depends, which is the most honest answer you can give to any question like this, it depends, is to find, well, why did, why did Professor Krapke, PhD, still with us, has a great YouTube channel, link in the video notes here, um, why did he invent this thing that now carries his name? And he really didn't. It's, it's been done in the past, but he was the guy that kind of grabbed onto it and made it known, and hence now it has his name attached to it. Well, he wanted to create a way where people could grow food in the undeveloped world, specifically in the tropics, though it works anywhere. But that's what it was. The, if you look at a lot of the places in the world, where people don't have access to, to, to food that they can readily produce for themselves. It's a lot of it's in the tropics. They end up, they can grow like fruits and stuff like that, but vegetables require uh, high levels of fertility. That, that is a luxury in some parts of the world. 
uh, rainforest soils, boreal forests, etc. They have really thin soils. They're great for growing trees. They're not so great for growing crops. And the only way you can grow crops is you burn them to the ground. Then you can crop the thing for a season or two, and then you're, you're, you're really in a bad way. So one thing that a lot of these places don't have is easy access to electricity. And he realized, like, you can chip in, you know, a couple bags of fertilizer for fractions of a penny a pound, and you can grow tons of food with a couple buckets of this stuff. You can literally send anywhere in the world. And, you know, if people don't have water, they have other problems. So you can usually come up with water, something to act as a container, and you can ship in the seeds, and you can ship in the fertility, and... You can feed a village with a few barrels of this stuff for years, right? So, so how can we develop a way where people that can't just plug into the grid the way that we can, can do this? And what he came up with is we fill a container so that the whatever we're going to plant the seed or small plant into is being touched by the water so it stays moist. We put the plant in, the plant starts sending its roots down. Everything's fine in the beginning. Everything's good to go. You know, no one has to worry about whether or not we got O2 or anything. We just put the brand new stuff uh, in the container. So everything's good. Now, all we have to do then basically is nothing. We do nothing. The water starts to evaporate and the level of the water goes down. And as the level of the water goes down, the roots chase the water. And you get this gorgeous kind of hair root structure above the water, a more typical root structure down in the water, and that air gap allows so much oxygen because you have the atmosphere to the plant. The plant's good, and the roots stay healthy. And as the water evaporates down, 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 as long as there's some water left in the reservoir, you're good. And so the first things that, that, that most people grow with Kratky and the first stuff that Kratky grew himself and taught people to grow were basically greens. And you don't have to be a genius to figure out why. You have a short turn time. This is why so many hydro and aquaponics commercial producers do the same thing, right? Because since it's a rapid turn time, you can get product to market quickly and get another batch. And you can get multiple harvests and you can grow a lot of food in a small space and it's high dollar food. If you look at what you pay for really high-quality you know, salad greens, you pay almost as much for that as you do for like some kinds of meat and stuff like that when you look at it by the pound. So it's a high ROI. And in a lot of these places that Kratky designed this for, one of the things they really struggle with is not necessarily getting enough calories. You're talking a lot of places where you still have like a, a significant hunter-gatherer society. But nutrients, right? So vitamins and minerals and things like that. And since we're putting that into the water and the plant's taking it up, it's in a bioavailable form. Hydroponic food, properly produced, is actually extremely healthy and extremely nutritious because the plant will take all the minerals, micro and macro, that it wants out of that solution. And again, if it's in the plant, instead of in a pill form like you take a vitamin, I, I, I don't oppose that. I definitely use supplements in my life. But if it's inside the plant, it's in the perfect state for your body to absorb it and use it if your body needs it. Your body also takes what it needs. So this is why Kratky did this. So one of the things you should think about is, well, do you lack, do you lack the ability to plug something into the wall and have power? You know, a little 20 amp drawing pump that costs almost nothing. If you can plug it in, 
maybe you don't need to do Kratky, because let's talk about the few things that, you, that I can tell you that are negative about Kratky. The first is you end up using a lot more fluid per plant grown, because you have a, a significantly sized container. Some people do it in jars or whatever, but then like, so it's a quart of fluid per plant, right? And so you have a lot of fluid. Additionally, at some point you have to kind of swap that fluid out, and you end up With a, in my experience in doing Kratky and doing you know ebb and flow and flood and drain and flow through and all different types of stuff using a pump, you seem to actually end up with a lot more waste fluid with Kratky, assuming you don't end up with the other problem, which is if that container goes dry, the plant dies. And it dies almost instantly, right? Especially if you're going indoors under lights or something like that, it, it dies Real fast. Like, the second it doesn't have moisture, as soon as those roots dry up and that last drop of moisture is gone, dead plants. And they're not coming back. Here's another problem with Kratky. And I'm not down on Kratky. Just, this is the truth. Like, this is how this all works. When that water level starts dropping, okay, and you get those beautiful hair-like roots, and you can definitely look, and you can see the roots in the water are a different structure than the roots above the water. If you think, I know, well, what I'll do is I'll fill it back up to like 80%. I'll just add some, you know, just get a jar and just add some and fill it back up. What will happen inevitably is that plant, the roots that were above in the air, they have formed based on being an air gap area that's got high moisture from evaporation. When you cover them with water, they will die. They will die quickly, and the plant usually won't die, but it will, it will be less than healthy. It will be less than optimum. You'll probably lose more than if you would have just went ahead and harvested and planted another plant in its place. You also now, like, let's say you're like, well, I don't want to, um, I don't want to grow little jars. I want to get maybe some 14-gallon uh, tubs like they sell at Home Depot and Lowe's for mixing you know, some mortar and cement in. Great. I use them for lots of things. They even make bigger ones. They're 20 gallons. Let's say a 14-gallon one. And you fill that up. And you put something over it and you do your cracky thing with it. Okay, let's say it's time to, to, to dump it out and replace it. You know, 14 gallons, it's still 7 gallons of fluid. And let's say it goes down by half. That's still a significant amount of sloshy fluid to get rid of, right? Now, you can put a drain in and a, a valve. And then you can put some sort of reservoir at the bottom. And you can drain your individual things down into a lower reservoir. But now you're getting into one of the detriments of pumps. Like you have to have a reservoir of pumps so you don't really grow down at that bottom level. You have to have a sump. So well, now you have to have a sump with your crab key to, to, to deal with this, right? Do you want to grow indoors or outdoors? Crab key was really built for people to grow just straight up outdoors or in greenhouses, shade houses, etc. They could be ramshackle put together anywhere in the world. If you don't have power to run a little bitty pump, You don't have power to run grow lights. If you're going to do an indoor system running grow lights, you clearly have power. So one of the things I love about doing hydro is the ability to grow indoors because I have a perfect climate indoors. Most of you guys probably have air conditioning and heat, right? So if you want to grow indoors, you're already going to be using power. Now, the, the, what is the downside of using any sort of pump-driven system where we're moving fluid through? First of all, what does it do for us? By moving the fluid, we reoxygenate the fluid, and hence, we don't get any problems. So even if our roots are almost completely submerged, 
in fluid at all times, they stay healthy, and they look healthy like they're supposed to. Right. The other thing is we have a reservoir, and we're pumping from that reservoir. If we're not doing ebb and flow or flood and drain, which is where the water comes up and drops back down, if we're just going to make and I for smaller systems, I really don't recommend that because you have to use significantly more capacity in your reservoir if you do this because you're not holding water up in your grow media. So if we just simply take our tray and we have an overflow that sets the level in that tray and we run fluid through there, we keep it topped up. The plant never runs out of fluid. And all we have to do is one place that's plumbed to these other grow trays, add fluid when we need to, and then we can drain that out and replace it when we have to, when it's, when it's gotten old. And I'm not going to get into that today, right? So that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because now we're never going to have the level get too low. We can even create kind of a, a cracky air gap. And we can do that by basically we have whatever your overflow is, we put in a valve. We, and when we start a new crop, we close it and we fill it all the way as high as we want it to be, above the overflow, let's say a couple inches. And we keep an eye on it as the plants start to grow and we let the crack key thing do its thing and that air gap forms and those happy little roots are in there. And when it gets down below the stand-up, we open it so it'll drain and we start running the pump. Now the pump maintains that exact air gap and boy, you get like you're kind of hybridizing there. It's really a pump-driven system. You're just not using the pump, let's say, for the first 10 to 14 days of the grow cycle. And now you have all the advantages of a pump and you get that grow kick. Because I'm telling you, that, that air gap, for greens especially, is awesome. Now, there's a lot of things you can do, like, and I have a link to Dr. Kratke's channel. Like, you can get a big, giant barrel full of fluid and you can put a float valve in your grow containers. And once it goes down below that level, the... The flow valve will just maintain that level, let's say 50% fluid level, so halfway up or 40% up or whatever you want to set it at, and then there's no energy in the system. Again, though, this is not ideal for an indoor growing system. And I think, like, if you're going to do Kratky and you're going to do it indoors, I think you're, you're probably best off, like, doing, like, lettuce in jars and either doing it in a really sunny window, which generally, not always, but generally doesn't um, work that great. Or doing it under grow lights with, you know, kind of the individual, like, easy size. Because it's easy to take a jar and dump it out. It's also easy, if you have lettuce growing in a jar, to, like, once every couple of days come in and just put, like, a marked line on your jar and just keep the fluid level there manually. You can do that if you really want to. And most of these crops, like these leaf crops and all, which are the most ideal to do this with basils, arugulas, lettuce, your grow time to harvest is going to be somewhere between 20 and 35 days. So Kratky works well for that. If you want to start growing tomatoes and things like that, it can be done with Kratky. You're really going to have to do that outside. I don't believe in growing tomatoes indoors. And I don't consider greenhouse indoors. I consider outdoors greenhouses and outdoors outdoors. And then when I'm saying inside, I'm talking where you have to put a light on it. Like peppers, tomatoes, stuff, eggplants, anything that's going to have a large plant structure and use a lot of energy over a long time, I think that actually works better with like ebb and flow type systems in an outdoor environment or a greenhouse environment. And so I think what really I would tell a person is you need to sit down and say, what do I most want to grow with hydroponics and what do I most want from hydroponics? For me, I have an outdoor system built with pipes. It's kind of a flow-through system. 
And that grows so much. I've gotten to where I pretty much only run it like a couple months before my workshop so I can feed all of my people a bunch of salads when I have 80 people here. And I can literally feed 80 people salad for days off of three 10-foot pieces of pipe that run in my greenhouse. Right, and it's, it's it's just too much. Like I, I was feeding it to the ducks. I couldn't keep up with it, and I just I just shut it off for a lot of the year. A small indoor system, you know, can grow enough salad for. It's just me and my wife here, and the kids once in a while. You know, again, cilantro, basil, you know, different like herbs and and leafy greens, two or three different kinds of uh, of lettuces, some Swiss chard, etc. And then you have this massive amount of healthy, fresh, available all year round. And to me, it it just seems easier to do with a pump-driven system. And a little, you know, like Allied Aqua Pump is like 50 bucks. And you can buy like a $20 pump on Amazon instead of the Allied Aqua ones I recommend. You can do that. It, it, it's fine. But remember, if the pump dies and you don't catch it, all your plants can die. And I've never had an Allied Aqua just die on me. I've had them like start to wear out after like seven years, and you can kind of tell like it's time to replace this pump. And a lot of the cheap pumps, I've had those just die. Now, again, going back, what's the advantages here? You have to make the decision for yourself. If you're doing Kratky, there is no pump to die. Power goes out, doesn't matter, as long as you're outside and you have enough light. However, don't underestimate the amount of affluent that you have to deal with. I'll also say, like, I got into doing, like, water hardness and every And what I ended up deciding was I would just follow the instructions with the powdered master blend fertilizer. You measure a certain amount of grams for, for so, you know, so much water of each. And for the lettuce, you do a little bit less of some things. And for, like, fruiting plants, you do a little bit more. I just do that. I don't even, I don't even check it. I usually mix it in a five-gallon bucket. If you fill it up to, like, you got the kind of ring around the top, that's about a gallon. So you to the bottom of that kind of top structure ring, that's four gallons. Throw it in there. I take a mortar mixer with a cordless drill, and then I you know put it wherever I need it, and and that's worked really well for me. And you can kind of like you can if I have a system upstairs in my house, and you can kind of walk upstairs with a four gallon you know four gallons in a five gallon bucket. Don't try it with five, right? And it's it's pretty easy to then you know maybe use a couple jars until you can dump the whole bucket or whatever. But going in a small reservoir, flow-through system, grow containers, holding the material, that sort of, that's worked best for me. And the Kingbow lights, by the way, that I featured last week, the grow lights, they're still on sale on Amazon for some crazy-ass reason during all this shortage. So if you've been wanting to set this up, I cannot overstate how great the rapid rooter plugs are. They're just They're the easy button. You can reuse them. I've reused some as many as four times. When I when I pull a plant out, and it's like, okay, this plant's got to go. It's all full of roots. I take it outside, and I throw it on one of my ebb and flow beds. I throw it right on the top. The worms come up, eat all the roots off as they rot, and I just reuse them. I, I used to put some hydrogen peroxide on them before I reused them, to, and I, I, I just let the worms do their job. They kind of sit out in the sun. The worms come up at night. When it's cool, they eat the roots off, and they kind of dry out in the sun, sit on top of the ebb and flow bed. If you have a worm bed, you can throw them in there like a warm farm or, or composting system, just throw them on the top and they'll, they'll clean them off for you. Um, that's it, guys. I mean, that's, that, that to me is the easy button, and you can do either one. Just think about how you're going to manage that fluid when it's time to remove it. And again, it is pretty easy to just maybe throw some bulkheads in some containers, 
But think about that. You can even dry fit your pipe so you can have that bulkhead just sticking out the bottom with a, with a valve on it so it's closed. You don't need that. Like, you can just have a piece of pipe that you plug in when you're draining. Uh, at least drain down to where, you know, you've got the majority of it out. It's so, it is, it is a pain in the ass, guys, to deal with a 14-gallon tub or a 21-gallon tub that's half full. And you're trying to slide it out. You've got lights and everything. Think about that. And just kind of think about it. And I have a ton of podcasts as I've covered this stuff. All of the links are in the video notes for you guys today. And I appreciate it. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Morning. Hi, folks. Jack Spierko here with episode 161 of the Survival Podcast. Not the Survival Podcast. The Miyagi Mornings uh, Podcast. And um, today we're going to talk about choosing a place to live. Like finding a new place to call home. I recently did an episode on strategic relocation within the United States. And I pointed out that like one of the things that we really have going for us in the United States is the fact that as a republic, and I just want to say something about the word republic. There's a lot of people in this country that have a misunderstanding of what republic is. And we'll say, we're not a democracy, we're a republic, and, and go on and on. Republics aren't magic. Over 100 nations throughout the world are republics. But we truly are a republic of states. And that gives us quite a bit of sovereignty at the state level. Nowhere near as much as I think was intended, but quite a bit. And that's why life in Pennsylvania is different than life in Florida, and why life in Texas is different than life in California. It's not just geography, it's not just economy and what have you, there's literally things in some states that you can do and no one cares about, and there's things you can do in other states that make you a felon and will put you in prison. Something as innocuous as this little pocket knife I'm showing to the people in the, in the live feed. This is a simple little, you know, nothing special, little knife. People might use it as an EDC knife. Nothing special about it. Um, in Massachusetts, this is a felony. Carrying this in your pocket is a felony. In Texas... It's like, boy, you should have a better knife. I mean, really. Like, so there's this huge variance between our member states. So with that in mind, I did an episode on how you can make your life better just by choosing a new place to live. This has resulted in a rash of questions that are similar to this one. Not all of them invoking Texas, though, but very similar to this. This came in today. My wife and I listen to your podcast. We live in Atlanta and are looking to escape climbing property taxes and Georgia corruption. What is a nice area to move to in Texas that won't break the bank? And I definitely can't answer that in an email. There's no way. It's not possible. I can't do it even if I tried. And I don't think, I don't think anybody else could either. Like, you could give somebody a few areas to check into or what have you, but I don't think you would really be doing them a service. And when I think about Texas, I think about, you know, Texas is a state within a republic, but Texas itself was a republic, and Texas itself is still thought of by many people that live here as its own country, or at least sort of its own country. We actually fly the Texas flag on equal status with the American flag in Texas. We're the only state that does it. Uh, we definitely have a bent toward nationalism. But when I say it today, I don't mean it with any of that kind of ego-driven or even historically driven reality. I just mean that Texas is big enough and diverse enough that saying, where should I live in Texas, is kind of like saying, well, where should I live in Argentina? 
Well, where should I live in the United States, damn near? Not quite, but I mean, it, it's kind of like that. I mean, no big difference between Florida and Montana, even if you don't invoke government, right? So when we, when we narrow down a state, to some degree, what we've done is we've defined for ourselves what our secondary government is going to be. And what I mean by that is you're going to have federal law, federal codes, etc., with federal supremacy anywhere within the United States that will apply to your life. And then states in general may do some pushing back, but mostly what they do is they add another layer of government onto you. And then within that state, you will find some tertiary governmental bodies like cities, counties, etc. that may add more or some that don't add hardly any so you have maximum freedom because the state doesn't bother with certain, certain things. But overall, within that state, it's pretty similar from one place to the other and the, the biggest variances are going to be very, very local ordinances or things like HOAs that, that interfere with your life. Otherwise, life in Texas is life in Texas to a degree. However... Where do you want to live? And when I, I mean, when I say that, I don't mean inside Texas or whatever. I mean, like, in general. Do you like desert climates? We've got that. Do you like more of, like, a rocky hill country climate, canyon climate? Yeah, we got that, too. Do you like rocky, mountainous desert climates? We got that. Do you like piney woods, like eastern-style woods? We have that. Do you want coastal living? Do you want river living? Like, the the state is so massive. It actually has two time zones that it's in. And again, this is not ego. This is just geographic reality. If you take the southern tip of Texas to the northern tip of Texas, pull Texas out of the map and stick the southern tip of Texas on the northern tip of Texas, the top of Texas touches Canada. And it's just as big going across from Texarkana to El Paso. How can I possibly tell you where to live there? And I think this is true of other states like I've spent a lot of time in Florida. I lived in Florida for a while. Jacksonville, Florida, and Fort Myers area are very, very different places. And Miami's very different as well. right? And then there's a whole piece of you know, broken up pieces of rural Florida that are totally different. Like, And so this is the case everywhere. So what we really need to do is figure out, well, what do we want and how close do I get to it? So here's what's going to seem like uh, a crazy Absolute crazy question, but it but it is the question that I used to use when I used to sell technology and computer networks. What's perfect in your mind? And I used to call it the magic wand question, and I would have a client where you're trying to help him design a network or a testing solution or whatever, and you'd have all these buts and we could but and you know and then you have like a group of people. You know, you get a conference table, you get like five people, their husband and wife, might as well be five personalities when husbands and wife try, start trying to come to agreements. And it's the same scenario where like, but this and what that, stop it. Let's not worry about, but, let's not worry about what's too expensive, let's not worry about any of that. Let's get this whiteboard here, and if I gave you guys a magic wand and you could all have whatever you wanted, what would you all get? And it usually took a little product because they're like, hey, the sales guy's trying to get us to buy expensive shit. No, because if you don't have the budget, you don't have the budget. And that'll come into this as, as well with, you know, if your dream house is 87 bedrooms and 5,000 acres and all, and you ain't got the budget, you ain't got the budget. Put it up there anyway. And it, once you got it flowing, once you got people like living the dream in their mind, they would come out. 
And everybody would throw up everything that they wanted. And you keep them going until they run out of steam. They're like, no, that's it. That's everything. Then, okay, what up here do we know we can do? Let's start making another list. All the things we know we actually can do. What up here can we get close to? You make another list. What of these things are actually things that are requirements? Because one of the things with a network might be like compliance with the law so we don't go to jail. Okay, so that's a requirement. So that's going to have to, that's a have to be. With your spouse, it might be, there's only so far I'm moving from my family. Right, so, and then other people might be, we'll go anywhere. So you got to find the have tos, the ones that you can get close to, the ones you can do, and then we're going to sanity check that against things like budget and, re and other realities. Are you independently wealthy? And when I say that, I don't mean you're rich. You're not rich, you're rich money bags. But I mean, when I say independently wealthy, you don't have to work for a living anymore. You have a lot more freedom than somebody has to have a job. What kind of job do you have? Can you work remote? If you can't work remote, now we've got to start looking for places where there's employers that can employ a person like you and a job that you are willing to do for money that works for you. And once we do that, we start to form this picture. But it all starts, I, I can't emphasize enough how much it all begins with what would be perfect. What would be perfect? Somebody might say, I want a beach house. But it might, let's say the state you've picked is Tennessee. There ain't no beach houses in Tennessee. So, okay, then we have to ask ourselves, well, what about a beach house is what I want? Is it the lifestyle of living on the beach? Is it the ability to walk the beach? Is it the ocean itself? Is it a water view? Is it just something romantic in my mind? What What is it? And if it's, you know what I really like is the wide open nature of an oceanfront and being able to walk for miles on a coastline. Maybe there's a lake or a river that does that for you. I don't know. You know, and are you willing to settle for it? Well, if you're not, then we need to look at another state. And this is this decision-making process. And if you think about it, honest to God, if we were doing right by our children with public education, which is government school, wouldn't this kind of like be a course you would teach kids? This is how to figure out exactly where you want to live and how close you can get to it and how to get it. Isn't that more valuable than how to do some sort of complex inverse trigonometry-based calculus for a kid that's going to go be an accountant? They might actually use it, right? You know, maybe. Accounting gets pretty advanced with mathematics, but usually not that kind. Right? The physicist needs that, not the freaking person that's going to go out and freaking do marketing for a multinational. And this is the kind of thing you have to, you have to do this for yourself because no one will give you what I'm giving you right now. And I can't give you all of it in a 15, 20-minute segment. I can't do it. But that's where I think we all need to start is what, what is perfect? Then out of the perfect, what is actually not just perfect but a necessary? And then out of the perfect, what is, man, I really want this. And then what's negotiable? And then we're going to start looking within our budget because we're going to have a budget, right? And, and this is back to what I teach about real estate. Every buyer is a settler. Every buyer is a settler, period. I don't care if you're, if someone says, well, what's your budget? $2.75 million. 
And some, and I don't have a budget like that. I never have. I've never even looked at a house in real life that was over a million dollars, let alone $2.7 million. But if I had $2.7 million, I'd have a vision in my head of everything that I wanted. And in the end, I'd settle. Every buyer will settle. Now, if you're selling a house, all that means is you find all the houses that are in the price range and area that your house is in. You make your house 1% better than everything else in the price range. You will sell your house that fast. I've done it in good markets, bad markets, sideways markets, leftways markets, rightways markets. It doesn't matter. If you're sitting in a position where your house shows 1% better than everything in your market at your price, you will sell that house as quick as it. Nobody will buy any of the other houses until your house is sold if you do that. But understanding that psychology and realizing that's what you're doing when you're a buyer. Instead of being emotionally driven in your decision about where to live, what kind of house to build, etc., because that's what happens in that settlement. You get locked in on an area, you look at everything, the bank says you can have this much money, you have this much of a down payment, and you look at things until you're exhausted, and then when one sticks out as being a little bit better, you buy that one. If you're selling, that's a good thing to know and trigger. But if you're buying, it's a good thing to know so that you're not triggered into making a bad decision, so that you can make a logically led decision about where you're going to live. So if I was moving to Texas for the first time, I would probably sit back and say, you know, I want some land. So then I would look, one of my first things would be, where can I live where I can afford land? And what do I mean by land? I mean, if I'm going to go to my perfect, right, well, then I would have like a thousand acres with a bunch of exotic game running around on it. Well, that doesn't pass my sanity check. I, I don't have the money to do that. So then land is, I want to be able to go outside in my backyard and not see my neighbors. Even with three acres, I've, I've been able to do that here. You know, for me, I want to be able to bring people here and conduct education. So the two big giant buildings, outbuildings on my property, with electricity, power, insulation, etc., AV and all, that's great. Like So that, that ticked the box for me. That you might not give two shits about. And that's why you have to start with this idea. What is perfect for me and how close can I get to it? So then you start... To refine that, okay, where are all the regions in this state that are in my price range to give me this potential? And the easiest way to do that is to just start looking at things. You know, I need at least a four-bedroom house. Go to Zillow or Realtor or whatever and start picking some places. And just sanity check the price. And, and then don't fail to, to use things like Google Earth, Google Maps, whatever, the satellite view, so you can get that overhead view of the property Because that'll rule out a lot of stuff. It'll also rule in it. Like, okay, that's right up against a freaking highway. They said highway access. I didn't know they meant highway easement in the backyard. I don't want that. It's too noisy. It's too dangerous, whatever. And then you start kind of refining that down. And then eventually you're going to have to start actually getting on the ground and going and looking. But the more research you can do that way, the more you can start to refine some areas. And then this is the difficult part of this. I'm moving to a new state. I don't have anybody there, I don't have a job offer, whatever, and I have total freedom. It's like trying to design a living room with no walls. You have no restrictions except this giant restriction, which is the state's borders. So that's what we're doing here. We're It's just like doing permaculture design. We're defining restrictions because once we start to put in restrictions, the design begins to shape itself. So the more places you can kind of rule out and rule in, the, then the other problem you get is like when we moved here, 
Okay, we need to be within an hour and 30 minutes of where Dorothy's dad was. That was one of our limitations. That was a have to. That was to get my wife on board with me. We ended up within 45 minutes, but we were willing to do up to an hour and a half. So that makes circle. That's a big flipping circle. And that makes finding a house even harder because most people are looking in a neighborhood. So there's maybe 30 houses for sale. You can go look at 30 houses in two weeks. It's, it's monotonous, but you can do it. When you have like four you've picked out, one's here, one's there, one's here, that's difficult. So then you got to start again using research to eliminate. You know, when I was in sales, another thing that, that I did differently than a lot of salespeople was I eliminated prospects as quickly as possible. Most salespeople would kill themselves to get in the door with somebody. Now, if there's a strategic company that I know there's an opportunity in the company that's different, anybody I can get to talk to with a pulse that I can get to somebody else, fine. But when I would find somebody, a smaller company or whatever, and I wasn't sure if we had a fit, as quick as I could rule them out, I'm not wasting another second. Like, they don't have the money, they don't have the need, whatever. I'm talking to the wrong person, and they can't help me get to the right person. I'm never calling you again. You'll stay in the database with a big freaking X, just in case I come across, oh, no, he's an X. Right? And that's how we have to do this with property. We have to X properties out. Like, this is not going to work, so I'm not going to waste much time on it. I mean, the other thing is moving sucks. Like, who who looks forward to moving? I mean, you might look forward to the eventuality after you move, but the process of moving blows. Being a prepper in moving early sucks. I've done that a couple times. So we want to make sure that we make the right decision if we can. Now, I would also say one more thing I want to finish up with. That doesn't mean maybe you don't want to rent a place kind of live in a place for a little while, get a feel for it, see what's what you really want before you commit all the way. The thumbnail today is a quote that basically says, when you move to a country, you learn really quick there's a big difference between being a tourist there and living there. I don't think that applies just to countries. That applies to states, cities, areas, etc. You can come down here to Texas as a, as a uh, tourist, and your experience will be totally different. In fact, I would say Texas might actually be the opposite of some places. You know, you go to some places as a tourist, and there's so much tourist stuff. You're like, wow, this is great. And then you realize, like, if you live here, it's not that big a deal. There's, it's not a huge tourist destination, Texas, really. You know, I mean, we have, like, the, the Rio Grande and uh, Big Bend National Park and stuff like that. But in general, like, Dallas is it's like any other city. There's not a huge a lot of things that people come to Dallas or Fort Worth or Austin to see. Um, it just isn't. And so I think that you really need to try living somewhere, and you do need to try visiting first. I know there's like that that quote's true, but we got to start somewhere. And I think moving to a place and having never stepped foot on it only makes sense if you're making a, like a career move. I, I've plenty of people have come here. Where are you from? Philadelphia. Why'd you come here? I'm an engineer, and I got a great opportunity with Lockheed. I get it. I think if you're making this move for yourself, for your family, as a strategic lifestyle move, we need to put a little more thought into it. That's why I like what uh, Free State Project's doing right now. Well, they have this uh, Visit New Hampshire initiative. It's basically, take a vacation to New Hampshire, but actually meet some people. And so if you go visit a place, I think one of the things you really need to do is you need to don't go there as a tourist. You know, get an Airbnb in a neighborhood. 
drive around, go to a park, take a walk, talk to some people, just talk to some random people. That's one good thing about coming here to Texas. Nine out of ten people, if you say, hey, how you doing, you're going to have a conversation after that. I mean, there's places like that doesn't happen. Like where I was from in Pennsylvania, if you talk to somebody for more than a couple seconds, you probably knew them. People don't just open up and start talking to some random stranger in line at a store. And, and, and the more you're in a place where, like, everybody knows everybody, they really know they don't know you, right? When people came down here to visit me from where I grew up in Pennsylvania, um, the one day, for instance, I had a friend with me. It was about the snow, uh, one of the rare times it snows here. And I'm standing in line. There's a lady in front of me in a line. And it was a long line because everybody's going to go buy milk and bread or whatever. And we talked for a good 15 minutes waiting in line. So she pays for her stuff, and she leaves. I'm like, bye. She's like, bye. And my friend goes, well, how do you know her? I said, I never talked to that lady for, for, for once in my life, and I'll probably never see her again. He couldn't even understand that. Like, those cultural differences matter, too. You know? So in the end, that's what I want you to do if you're trying to find a new place. Let's start with that that dream list. And then we pare down the dream list. What comes out of there that's a want? What can we get close to? What's a need or requirement? And then sanity check it against budget and then start pulling off reasons. And I'm sorry to the guy that wrote me the email. I can't just say, you know, check out this area. But without having any of those answers, I really don't know. What does what does not break the bank mean? What does that mean you want to spend on a house? You're not happy with Georgia property taxes. Boy, there's places in Texas you really don't want to live with property taxes. And so, you know, basically rural is better. Unincorporated is better. But maybe not. It's all up to you. With that, I will... Uh, Catch up with you guys tomorrow with another episode. Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. We are up to episode 162 today, and we are going to talk about crypto, kind of our weekly Miyagi that has stuff to do with crypto. But I'm going to come at this from a different angle today, I guess, or a different way. I want to talk about how a crypto token can have value that really doesn't have anything to do with People buying and selling it only. Now, obviously, if somebody won't pay for a thing, then the thing has no value. But I'm talking about the way it can generate value within its ecosystem. Why somebody would pay for it, independent of, oh, I can hold on to this thing and exchange it later on for more money than I put into it now. Like, you buy things all the time especially when you're buying things as a service, that you get something for it, and then you go on about your life. And can crypto work that way? Or can it be a hybrid where you're buying that, but there is an underlying value? So instead of store of value, can there be value as a service within this? And I believe there can. And I'm going to do this in a couple, a couple different ways for you today to help you understand it. Some stuff that's been around a while, And a few things that are really new and, and really sort of exciting, except one of them involves the state, um, which I'm no fan of, but I'm also a fan of, I am a fan of, like, this is what's happening, and this is how you can benefit from it, right? So let's start off with what we, what we generally think of when it comes to crypto is, again, you buy this thing because of whatever great story came from it or with it, And it seems like a good idea, and if I hold on to it for a couple weeks, maybe I can buy a Lamborghini or something. Like That's where people think value comes from. But I've said from the very beginning as I started talking about this, and as these alternative coins or altcoins and alternative tokens showed up, 
What is the utility of the token? And does anybody give a shit? And does it already exist somewhere else? Like, if we can't get past that, then I don't really see the point in having something other than Bitcoin. I call myself a maximalist light, right? Um, so starting out, a search engine came out a, a while ago, and I've promoted it quite a bit, and it's been profitable for me to do so. It's called PreSearch. And PreSearch has its own cryptocurrency. And, and the first two here are more typical of the way this thing has worked. And then I'm going to get into some really innovative stuff as well. But pre-search is very simple. You want to find stuff. So you search. And in return for you using their engine, they pay you in crypto. And then that crypto can accumulate and you can cash it in or you can use it to buy advertising on the same search engine. And if an advertiser wants to advertise on that search engine, they have to pay for their advertising in their cryptocurrency, their native token, called PRE. This is an ERC-20 token, so it's built on Ethereum. And you can even basically stake a certain amount in return for getting a certain position for a certain keyword for a certain time. Well, why would you do this? Why wouldn't you just say, hey, you, you want to buy advertising on our, our search engine, you pay in dollars, then you redistribute some of those dollars to your users in some sort of a rewards program or something. Well, it's dollars, and it, it doesn't integrate seamlessly with a search engine. Dollars weren't meant to do that. Why wouldn't you use Bitcoin? Why don't you use Bitcoin and Lightning Network? It's a lot of work to integrate that. You can actually develop the token to work seamlessly with your system. So you have this seamless integration. If something's not working right, the same people that built the search engine develop the currency so they can fix the problem or they can, they can add features much easier. Or at least, even if, even if you have two different kind of dev groups, they are in the same organization. They can talk to each other. Plus, if I'm going to reward my users, and I, then I'm going to do dollars or Bitcoin, I have to go out and buy it versus letting the platform develop the value itself. And it's, it's, it's been pretty good to me uh, using it and recommending it because they pay you to use it. But they also repay, they pay you to refer others to it. So I've got a good little stack of pre. Now, will pre be worth a lot of money someday? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, Will pre-search really take on? I don't know. But one of the interesting things that just came out in the news yesterday is Google added pre-search to the default search engine options for Android devices in Europe and the UK. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, but it's kind of a big deal. Because what it means is you're going to have literally millions of people exposed to the fact that this thing even exists and figure out, hey, I could, I could get a little bit of this crypto every time I use this search engine, and that builds loyalty to the search engine. And in the article that I have linked in the video notes, you'll see that the justification for this is basically the EU has been kind of cracking down on Google saying, you can't create your own monopoly within your own device, so they need to add some other search engines. But don't you think that uh, Google might figure out a way to monetize the traffic that goes through pre-search with an agreement between them that has to do with crypto back and forth? So if they got to add something, why not add something that they can still profit from? So that's interesting. I'm not saying to go out and buy a bunch of pre or anything, but I'm just saying that's an interesting use case. Another use case, I bet you many of you guys have used it, right? Uh, the Brave Browser. Do you use the Brave Browser? 
Well, the basic attention token has been in existence since, I think, 2016 or 2017. It was around during the 2017-2018 explosive boom of a bazillion altcoins. And it's one of the ones that's still here. And the reason is they built a platform that actually works. The way that Brave works, in conjunction with the basic attention token, this is another ERC-20 Ethereum-based token, is that when you use the Brave browser, Brave browser, if you, if you're willing to, you see these little advertisements. They come up in the corner of your screen, like right up there, right up where it says the Survival Podcast here. And they're just little advertisements. And those advertisers have to pay in crypto, and you get paid by being willing to receive advertisements in crypto. You get a piece of the advertising. And, you know, I don't know, average Internet user probably adds up to four or five bat a uh, a month, not a huge amount of money, it's, it's under a dollar a unit, but you didn't do anything that you weren't going to do anyway. We see ads all the time, and then it blocks other advertisements, which is nice, and prevents pop-ups, and it's secure, and, and they're not spying on you the way that Google is with Chrome, and they just got caught doing that. But by having this token that's native to that ecosystem, they create this seamless interaction, and, and The only thing that I've not liked about it, because I do well with basic attention token as well. Not only do I use it and get that little four or five a month, a lot of people, they get their Brave tokens and they're like, I really didn't do anything for this. I know there's some value to it, but when I visit other websites, like I value those sites. So I'm willing to transfer the value I was given and, and give it to some of these sites. So people will set up like, here's my five sites and divide it up against how many times I view those sites in a month and distribute whatever Brave I have or X amount of Brave to these people. Or they'll just say, I want to support this site with my Brave or whatever. So I'll make another 50 or 60 bucks worth of Brave um, every, every month from people that do that because I have a high-traffic website. So now the advertiser's paying for access, the user's receiving value, and the user's transferring the value to the content provider that they like. I don't know how you do that as seamlessly and integrated as they've done it without a native token. The issue's been getting the money out's been stupid. Um, they use a company called Uphold. It's been a pain in the butt. But like Gemini is an exchange, a crypto exchange, and they've just made a deal with Brave where you can get your bat straight over to that exchange, which means you can then either hold it, withdraw it to a wallet, or convert it to something you find more value in, like Bitcoin. So now I can take my bat, immediately convert it over to Bitcoin, which means now that that bat is in the free market, so an advertiser can buy it to use to buy advertising. We're creating this holistic environment of value-to-value-to-value exchange. Content providers, without content providers, nobody's on the Internet in the first place. Advertisers, without advertisers coming into this and bringing new money into it, it doesn't actually earn anything. Users, without users absorbing the content, There's no value, and users seeing the advertisements, if that's not there, there's no value either. But the value is now being shared across the platform, the content provider, um, the advertiser, and the user, instead of only being sucked into one hole. And again, I don't know how you would how you would do that without using a native. I don't know how you would do it as effectively and seamlessly if you were to use some third-party crypto there. Okay. Now, I would say that both of these platforms are also being tempted into doing this through the ability to do what? To print their own money without going into public you know, trading stocks and all the crap that goes with that, which is a 
dadgone nightmare. And in particular, Brave got in under the wire where, where you could do an ICO without it being illegal. Right? They got in in a time to be able to do it. So that, there is that. But there are other ways that a chain can become valuable and produce value that have nothing even to do with kind of that direct relationship we've talked about so far or printing money. Because in, in essence, it's what it is. You're printing money, but you're letting the money you print, instead of when the government prints money, The new money takes value from the old money. Most people here, I think, are able to understand that, right? But when a crypto company comes out and prints money, that money only has value if people decide that it has value, use it, trade it, etc. So it has to actually do something to get value if the value is real. And and the the uh, the I'm sorry, the uh, good lord, the thumbnail for today's episode says, nothing of value, real value, is free. And I want you to think about that as we go to the next one. Really interesting story came out yesterday about a cryptocurrency called Algorand. And Algorand is a crypto that is a proof-of-stake coin. It's very innovative. It's made by, It was developed by a cryptographer. I can't think of his name, but he's out of MIT. This guy is like massively talented guy, huge amounts of awards in the space of uh, uh, cryptography and what have you. And I won't get into how, but I'm just telling you, it is one of the most secure proof-of-stake cryptos that could ever have been devised. The way that it works, it's, I don't see how anybody would ever be able to hack it or stakers would be able to behave badly or what have you because literally, a short version is, the validators that will validate the next block are chosen about 10 seconds before that block is validated, and then the next block, it happens again, and it's different people every time. And it's really, really innovative, and it's super fast, it's super light, and it's super cheap to use. Again, I'm not saying go out and invest in any of this stuff, right? I'm just telling you what it does so you can understand what I mean when I say what's the utility. So you'd look at this and say, well, it's really great for payments. Because Bill can send money to Steve, and it's super cheap, and it's super fast, so it competes with Bitcoin because it's faster and cheaper. I don't think that is a valid means of competing with Bitcoin at this point. I'm not going to get it into it today, but... There are ways to make fast, cheap payments with Bitcoin, but mostly in, in, in the developed world, we're not using Bitcoin for payments anyway. We're using it as a store of value. So you got to do something else. Because Litecoin is faster and cheaper than Bitcoin. So what can Algorand do? Let's think about the word transaction differently. So the news story that came out yesterday was the government of El Salvador, who recently made huge uh, news because they adopted Bitcoin as legal tender, just made a deal with Algorand. Well, why would they do that? They're, they're, going to use, well, they're not going to use it as legal tender. They're not going to use it as money. They're going to use the Algorand network for public records keeping. Now think about that. So public records might be something like who owns the title to a car, who owns the title to a building, things like that. These are things that are not, when you talk about security with them, the security you're talking about is not security as a form of privacy. They're public records. Right? So they would go on a public blockchain. If I have your VIN number right now, I can find out all kinds of information about your vehicle, including you and who owns it, and who actually has the title to it if you financed it. So that's all public anyway. So security there isn't about keeping people from seeing it. There's two types of security that you'd worry about with hacking there. One would be you don't want anybody able to change it. You want it immutable. You want it uncensorable. 
We generally think about the, the uncensorable nature of a blockchain as benefiting us against like giant corporations and government. Turns out government might actually want things to be uncensorable themselves. Like who owns a thing? Right? Like so this actually could then kind of work in the world of NFTs if we weren't doing stupid shit with NFTs like we talked about last week that we won't talk about today. But you remember I said like we could tokenize the title of a car, run that on something like the Algorand blockchain with a smart contract that says you bought the car from Chevy and you use GM financing and that smart contract's in there and the day you make the last payment the title ownership transfers from Chevy to you automatically. Now, the other security you want for this is you don't want to be locked out. If you think about ransomware, a lot of times with ransomware, it's not, we have all this data and we can use it to harm you and we'll give it back. Because how do you know they didn't make a copy of it? It's they get into a network and they lock the people that need access to the network out. Now imagine you're a country and your public records database, you lock people out, like you can't get into it, you can't see it, you can't touch it. So you want security from the, the standpoint of, I don't want it changed and I don't want to be locked out of it. So what you do is you take the Algorand network of all this validation and all this security and all this cryptography, and you allow it to provide security to your network. So it can be accessed, you can't be locked out of it, and you can trust the data on it. Well that's secure, you're paying nothing of real value is free. You have to pay for security. That's how it works. So then, who gets paid? All the people that hold Algorand, that act as stakers, right, as validators, get paid through the staking process. That's already there. So the reason a country would do this is the same reason countries don't, you know, build their own computers or build their own computer networks. Countries have vendors to do this. But what if instead of a vendor, you had a blockchain that could be trusted because it's decentralized? And then think about this whole, we're going to ban crypto. Well, if this type of adoption starts to take place, how are you going to ban something that the government is going to ban it is using, and they need people to be actually actively engaged for it to work? I'm not saying it will happen everywhere. I'm saying El Salvador is doing it. Now, we could move into a place like the United States. Things are a little different, right? So if you buy a car in Florida... Your car is registered and the title is registered in Florida, not the United States. What if I'm going to sell a car from Florida to somebody in Texas and there's intermediary holding the title, right, GM, right, financing, but the new financee is going to be Frost National Bank in Texas and the new owner is going to be Tom in Texas versus Frank in Florida. Well, that's not going to work straight Algorand If Florida is using ERC-20 Ethereum tokens, which they might, and Texas is using, let's say, Algorand, well, that's where you can get into cross-validation technology, something like Cosmos, another blockchain that not only can do all the things we just talked about doing with Algorand, so slightly differently, it can also create this bridge between these sovereign networks and allow them to talk to each other so all that could be executed automatically. And, of course... There'd be some sort of cost to run the blockchain in Florida on ERC-20. That's going to be Ethereum staking once that becomes available. And maybe Texas, it's being staked through Algorand, and that's providing the security visibility, interconnectability, immutability, right? And then maybe you have something like this other technology acting as a smart bridge, smart contract connector between the two. Now, you've got to pay for that, right? Nothing 
of real value is free. Well, Cosmos works through staking as well. So here's where I start to actually differ from this debate that we often have with people that are big fans of proof of work. And they say proof of work is more secure, etc. If you're trying to secure the token itself as a thing of value, then you probably are right that proof of work is better. There has to be a, you want a discrepancy to use proof of work. That's what Bitcoin uses. That's what Litecoin uses, right? So the miners are competing with each other, right? If you want speed and you want reliability and, and you're, you're, you're not at a point where like, I want this one Bitcoin to be able to exist in my little hard drive in Belarus and I don't want anybody able to get it and I want a more broad type of security, I want a more broad type of application, then actually what benefits the network most is not competition but collaboration. Now I need a way to keep collaborators honest. And, and, you know, things like Algorand, things like Cosmos, things like Polkadot, right? These, these proof-of-stake validation-level networks that, that can be a layer-one network, and meaning they can operate on their own. They can also move up in hierarchy and operate as level two or even level three technologies with interoperability. If you want fast, light, quick, cheap, then you don't want everybody fighting each other. You want everybody cooperating, but you want, again, you want to be able to keep the cooperation honest. And this is why I will throw a little bit here for you at the end with Algorand from a technology standpoint. What they do is incredibly intelligent. And this guy's name is like Silvaki, Silvaki, like Mikilo, like is his first name. I, I just never can actually say his name right, so I don't say it. This guy's a genius in what he did in that you have all these stakers all over the network And I think it's 10-second blocks. And each time a block is confirmed, the, the, the validators for the next block are selected at random from the entire network and validate the next block, and then so on and so on. There's literally no one who stays a validator long enough to behave badly, nor do they have time to get ready to behave badly. And you certainly can't do some sort of, like, so what you would say about, a network that's proof of stake. And, you know, another currency I've liked in the past, but this is a weakness, ARC. So ARC has something like 48 validators. Well, if you knew who all the 48 validators are, couldn't you run something like a dedicated denial of service attack on just those people so that they can't keep your network running? Well, if your network is a million different options and you're using a hundred out of a million every 10 seconds at random, how the hell do you DDoS that? And the answer is you don't. So I think it's, maybe it's not the end-all be-all with tech here, but I think that when we start moving into these types, these types of value-based service, when you look at Bitcoin and people say, well, you know, Ether can do this or whatever, and they're talking about technology versus underlying value, and I think Bitcoin wins that. But when you start talking about delivering, providing services, even if a lot of those will eventually come from Bitcoin, these types of, of interoperable, validatable, securable networks that can be basically your... Think of it as buying cloud computing power and having a certain level of guarantee of security and safety, right? And, and not be locked out of it. Think about if you build a social media platform on blockchain... What do you say so great about it? Nobody can censor it. 
Well, what if you have a network you don't want anybody locked out of? To be hacker-proof, not from the people getting the data, but again, locking you out of it so it can't be used, so you can shut down the, the, the commerce of a country or a state. Think of it, if you can hack into the public records access and lock everybody out of it, you can't sell a car, you can't transfer a property, etc. But if you can secure that network to the point where anybody from anywhere can access it because it's public data anyway... Who's gonna, how do you hack it now? How do you shut it down? You can't. It's uncensorable. And again, we don't think of states wanting things to be uncensorable, and generally they don't, but when it benefits them, they do. And with that, we'll be back tomorrow with another episode for you. All right, folks, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 163. And this is one I've been getting a lot of questions about lately. And let's kind of start out with um, the way it's being phrased and the, the irony of, of what people are uh bringing to it, and that's, uh, could the U.S. ever break up kind of sort of like or the same way or similar to how the Soviet Union did back, you know, from transitioning from the late 80s into the early 90s? And something is being said about this that is, it's one of those ironies of history that history often does rhyme. Things do seem to happen in the same way even if it's not the exact same thing. So, for instance, when all the COVID crap started, people said, you know, there was a, uh, there was a pandemic in 1922, right? 1920, not 19, 1920 also, right? And, yeah, yeah, there was. Well, it turns out that if you go back and look at fairly recent history, and I'm wondering how many of you guys watching this are old enough to actually remember this happening, not you were running around peeing your pants and somebody told you about it, but like you actually were old, you're a teenager or what have you, and you actually remember the Soviet Union falling apart. Like, who out there remembers that? I'd love to see that in the comments section. And, uh, yeah, Suburban Homestead Outfitters has it perfectly. Uh, it was roughly two years after the Soviet Union completely withdrew from Afghanistan that they fell apart into, you know, multiple member states. They lost their death hold on Eastern Europe. Uh, nations like Ukraine, Lithuania, uh, Georgia, etc. became independent sovereign nations, right? And is there a parallel in the United States dumping so much into Afghanistan ourselves and reaching a point of basically, are we the next, next empire? that went to Afghanistan to die. And maybe. And I think what would be interesting is, for those of you that are old enough to remember this, at least on some level, like one guy says he's 44, you, you probably remember it, but you're a fairly young kid. People that are like 50 and older, like we were at the end of our teens, entering of our 20s or older when it happened, so we were kind of maybe a little more in the adult range. And... If someone had told you in 1987, by 1992 there won't be, like when you look at the globe, the new globes they make, it won't say USSR on them. It won't say East and West Germany anymore. That won't be a thing. Would you have believed them when they told you that? Think about, try to think about something you were doing in 1986, 1987. 
This this helps you to try, you know, kind of get your mind back to that long ago. It doesn't seem that long ago, but then when you do the math, that's quite a while ago, isn't it? We were we were all much younger, or some of us weren't even here yet. And I have to say, in 1987, I was uh, driving a souped-up 455 Pontiac, racing with my friends, and not paying a tremendous amount of attention to this. You know, I was worried more like, well, where are we going to get beer for Friday night? You know, who's going to who's going to who's going to have the connection to get us some, a couple cases of Yingling or something? But I, honest to God, believe if you'd come up to me and said, you know, by by 1992, 1993. The entire map of the world will change, and all these things that you've grown up with, expecting, and that would go on forever, this endless Cold War, etc., will be gone. Um, I would have said, "There's, there's no way, there's no way that that's going to happen." And I think if you would have went up to the average Soviet citizen and told them that they, you know, and they had a better view than we did because we see it from the outside and what we're told, they would have said, "No way," as well. I think the average person living in the, the split city that was Berlin, looking at that wall, either wishing they could get across it or wishing their loved one on the other side could get across to them, would have said no way. Like this isn't just gonna like this doesn't just go away, <clears throat> and that it would all happen without anybody firing a missile or dropping a bomb or firing a shot. That it would just under its own weight and under the ineptability. Of, of a leader, right, who didn't really want to hold it together anymore, fall apart. Now, we, we can look at that and say, well, you know, Gorbachev was good, because it was good that it fell apart. But that wasn't his job to cause it to fall apart, right? His job was supposed to be the security of the state he was, he was elected to, to lead. So now we have the U.S. withdrawing from the place where empires go to die, Right, um, we have an inept leader. I, I think that even the people that claim to support Joe Biden know we have an inept, inco incapable, incompetent leader. I think if you look at, and this isn't political, this is just like let's let's just be observational. Let's pretend we're not Americans. Most of us in this meeting today or listening to this podcast today, we are Americans, right? Let's pretend we're not. Let's pretend that we live in some made-up country that doesn't even really exist and sitting out in the middle of the Pacific and doesn't really give a two shits about what happens to the rest of the world, and we're just impassionately analyzing this situation, right? We would say that the Biden administration is completely incompetent. I, I think that anybody who would be dispassionate about that would. And, and not just the man, the entire thing. When you have, you know, because it wasn't Joe Biden's idea I know we'll be more equipped to stand up to the Chinese and the Russians if we have maternity flight suits. He didn't come up with that idea, right? Like, people in the Department of Defense said, hey, here's an idea. And like, and did nobody say to these people, hey, do you, do you know women in their third trimester, unless it's an absolute emergency, shouldn't be on an airplane in the first place? Right? But, but this is an idea. Or we need to make sure that we have more transgendered people in the infantry or something. Like, these are not things Joe Biden came up with. So we have the Afghanistan corollary, and we have the incompetent administration. And when I'm talking about competence here, I'm kind of in the vein of, of what we talked about last night on Unloose the Goose with uh, Professor CJ, about the, the, the leader's competence to hold things together.
right? I don't think we have that. I think we also had, when the Soviet Union fell apart, an incredibly, incredibly divided Soviet Union. And we had an incredible thirst to be away from that union within a lot of the satellite republics like Lithuania, Georgia, Estonia, etc. Like, they wanted to go. Now, that doesn't mean they all wanted to go. It doesn't mean everybody's like, yay, right? But it was like, there was a, there was a majority of Estonians that wanted Estonia to be Estonia. And, and I think if you're younger, this is hard to even understand how big this was. I remember, I, I, I knew this was going on, but I was also kind of isolated in my own little pocket of the world while it was actually happening. So, I was in Panama serving in the army. We had one station that had English on it, and it was the AFI station. And we spent most of our time going to the bar and hanging out at the NCO club and stuff like that. So we knew what was going on, but we didn't really, I don't think we really took it in. Like we were still learning how to identify with our threat cards, um, threat vehicles, and they were all like, you know, Russian hind aircraft and stuff like that. We were, we were still in that mindset if there's ever a big war that we have to go fight, it's going to be with the Soviets, even though the Soviet Union was already gone. That was just how we thought. And when I, when I got out of the Army and I got home, and the first Olympics is when it really hit me. The first Olympics after I got out, you know, and you see this athlete competing for Lithuania or Ukraine, and you're like, and then the German athletes are Germany. And you've grown up your whole life with East Germany and West Germany and Soviet Union. And now you've got a Russian and a Ukrainian competing against each other in the Olympics. And I think that people that didn't really live through that, it's very hard for you to see the odds that this is going to happen in your lifetime. So the question I have up for people in the live stream right now is, what do you think the odds are that a middle-aged person will see the U.S. collapse during their lifetime? And I'd, I'd like to put some kind of odds on it, like 9 out of 10 or, you know, 55%, throw something um, like that up there to, to just kind of baseline this. So we're talking about a middle-aged person. Somebody that remembers the Soviet Union collapsing, somebody my age, ho you know, hopefully if, like, I don't get hit by a... So it's 50-50 is what we're starting to see people come up with. But, like, if I don't get hit by a truck or have a stroke or something, if I live a typical life, I've got 30 to 50 years max. Like, living to be 100 is very rare for, for men especially. So I've got somewhere to 30 to 50 years of my life force, my dash to spend. And people are saying it's 50, 50, 60%, etc., right, that, that a person my age is going to see this. So then my next question, and those of you listening to the audio, I want you to ask this for yourself and come up with an answer for yourself. What do you think the odds are that a child will see the U.S. collapse and break up in their lifetime? Right now I've got two grandkids out there working on their homeschool stuff. One is 10 and one is 5. So I'd like to know, and I understand there's a time delay here and all, but what are the odds that one of those, that, that those kids sometime in their lifetime will see the United States come apart, break apart, the empire itself collapse in some way? It may not look exactly like the Soviet Union, but is, is it a higher degree of probability that they'll see it? And I, I want to know what you think of that. And those of you that are at, um, you know, sitting at home, uh, listening to the audio version, come up with your own number. It's really important for this one that you kind of get that number in your head. 
Like, and what is that? What is that difference for you now, right? What what is what what? So now you know we're seeing numbers come through like eighty uh, percent. Chris H says fifty percent that he'll see it, but ninety five percent likelihood for his kids. He also says unfortunately. I think that's important. We're going to come back to that. It's a great comment, man. I thanks for putting that uh, up. But you know, like we have um, right or wrong saying eighty five percent. You know, I'm, I'm thinking that's talking about. The kids seeing it. So now here's here's the next one I have for you. Okay? What do you think the odds are that the United States will collapse and break up in the next 100 years? I'm sorry, 150 years is what it's supposed to say. Let me uh, let me change that. So that's that's what I'm asking. 150 years. So in the next 150 years, what do you what are the odds that you think the United States will not be the empire that it is today 150 years from now. And it's going to be really interesting what happens here. Now we're seeing 100%, 100%, 110%, 199%, right? You know, we're, this is just like as soon as as soon as soon that question, I'm, I'm, I'm showing some of the answers now up on the screen. You can see me scrolling through, and I have plenty to work with here, right? The numbers just went up really, really fast for everybody. Relative to their own previous number. And I think that's what's more important, right? That You see what I'm saying? It's not that everybody went to 100, but the person that was at, like, well, kids seeing it's 50-50 went to, like, 85-90%. Uh, people that said it's you know, it's it's 80% the kids will see it went to 110% that it will happen within, you know, the next 150 years, right? And so everybody kind of made the same progression as we went further into the future. And that's where I think we have to be to discuss this thing with any kind of rational thought. The odds that this will happen are nearly 100% over time. The question then is how long is that time? And, and the reason I'll say they're near 100% is tell me an empire that's ever existed that didn't collapse? Who's left that was an empire who didn't collapse? And even if, like, it kind of came back together, it didn't collapse. And when it came back together, it didn't look exactly like it did when it collapsed, right? Have you seen many Romans running around in northern Germany lately? You know, other than tourists. You kind of get my point. Remember when all roads led to Rome? And do you think a Roman citizen 20 years before Rome collapsed was really of the belief that, hey, this is going to be gone in 20 years? Probably not. By the same token, we have to be to be honest about this, right? Russia is not come back together, dude. Right? Russia, so we got Boyle Rope says, uh, Russia. Russia is an empire that's still around. Russia collapsed multiple times. Russia in the form of the Soviet Union, Russia and other forms has collapsed multiple times throughout history. And every time it reconstitutes, it reconstitutes differently. Right? Um, and you can look at, and, and when I say empire, I mean actual empire, right? And the Soviet Union was an empire. Russia's not an empire. Russia would have a hard time right now getting much of anything done in the world, honestly. Um for all the talk about Russia's military and China's military compared to the U.S. military, they're 
They're, 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 they're not that good, just to be honest. That's not bravado, because I'm not saying we're going to stay there. In fact, we're talking about falling apart today, right? And so if you look at any historical empire, it eventually dies. And that's why I say that this will happen. So then we got to start asking some questions. And we, we just kind of went through one, but how probable is it that it will happen in your lifetime? Because if it doesn't happen in your lifetime, I know you might care about your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, you know, in principle, but in reality, it doesn't matter to you. You shouldn't basically live your life a lot differently or make decisions a lot differently if you don't think it's likely to happen in, in your lifetime, at least based on this thing. Like, okay, I'm going to put that on the back shelf and say it's not likely to happen. But again, do you think that a, the average person in the U.S. or the Soviet Union thought that the Soviet Union breaking apart was likely in 1985, 1986, 1987? And do you think that the people saying, hey, this is coming... Looked like lunatics on both sides. Because we had people in our State Department, we had people on our side saying, they're about to go. And our government said, shut up. No, they're not. It's not like governments have a track record of being right. But then the next question would be, if you think it's possible in your lifetime that it would affect you, what does it look like? What does it look like? Because one of the commenters said, unfortunately... It's almost 100% for my kids, unfortunately. I think it's good that we look at it at least that way some. There are a lot of people that think this needs to happen. On some levels, I agree. I do not think it's good for one nation to have this much power over the world. However, history has shown that one nation tend, in, in, will tend to. So part of it is, though... <laughs> Though we may not, you know, those of us especially that are very peaceful people, we may not want this power. Maybe we want somebody else having it less. Maybe a reconstituted Soviet Union or, or greater Chinese empire, or who knows who, rises up in a vacuum is worse for us. Then there's the other side. What does it look like here? Instead of globally, what does it look like for the United States? Does this, if this breaks apart, does it happen peacefully like the Soviet Union? You know, there was a real potential for something like Red Army troops to march into Ukraine and, and, and Crimea and Lithuania and Estonia and say, no, you're not. In fact, things are going to change, but you're not leaving, right? But it didn't. But it could have. It it's also had a real high probability that somewhere before this naturally occurred, that people in one of those satellite republics would have said, We've had enough of this shit, and we're leaving and tried to go before the fall apart. What did that look like? We don't know. Do you think that's possible in this country? Do you think we can get to a point where states like Florida and Texas and other similar states who are moving and pushing more and more against the grain of the, the country as a whole start out with, hey, we're going to... We're going to create this coalition of the states. We're going to stand under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments of the Constitution. We're going to we're going to be sort of kind of like the founding fathers in the Continental Congress before the American Revolution, right? We're going to try to use the system as it's designed to assert our sovereignty. But what happens if you know the court system decides no? And even when the court system decides yes, the federal government ignores the courts. Have we not just seen? that the federal government will ignore even the Supreme Court of the United States and find ways around it. 
And eventually maybe it catches up. But how many times do people let that happen? And what hot-button issues set people off, right? So down here in the South, parts of the West, etc., right to keep and bear arms is something people will, you know, it's a hill people will die on. Uh, we just had a major abortion decision in Texas. Regardless of where you fall on that, that's also a hill that people will die on, on both sides. Because what we're talking about here is division and understanding a breakup, regardless of what you believe about the issue, division is the thing that causes the breakup when you can't have either side feel that they can peacefully coexist. It's like when one microphone gets too close to the other and you get that screeching feedback loop. When people start to feel that way, they get angry and they get violent and they do things they wouldn't otherwise do. When they feel that what they want and what they feel is that feedback loop, that they have no voice anymore. That no, that they, they can't work within the existing system. That's when you blow the system up. Have any of you felt that way recently? Like your voice doesn't matter. Like using the system is not going to work anymore. When you get a people to that point in what is purported to be a democracy or call it a, you know, a representative democracy in the form of a constitutional republic, whatever, wherever people believe that they have a voice through the system, when they no longer believe that they do, the more those people believed that their voice mattered, the more divisive not feeling that it happens anymore becomes. It could be that your your great-grandparents' voice didn't matter, their grandparents, etc. Nobody's voice mattered. But if you believed in the system, and then you feel the system will no longer work for you no matter what, if you feel that you're being cheated, if you feel, if you feel that elections are being stolen by despots on either side... If you believe it's possible, even if your guy's in for now, all of these things start to add up to where you have the collective vantage point of people going, you know what, I do trust the person that lives across the street even though we disagree. I do not trust the person that lives a thousand, two thousand, three thousand miles away from me making decisions about my life. That's a basic innate human instinct. That's why this, this place was put together as a constitutional republic in the first place, with an emphasis on the sovereignty of the individual states within the republic. But how much of that is left? Not a lot. So I think that there is at least a 50-50 chance of this type of a breakup occurring in the next 10 years. And I think that next year, I could say the odds are 60-40, Or I could say, you know, now they're like 30-70. That, that, that is a, 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 a calculus that can change. But it can change very, very quickly. And I'll tell you, if you saw the thumbnail for this, you know that the, 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 the emphasis here is this always happens gradually, then suddenly. The things that lead up to this type of collapse come over decades, maybe even centuries of bad management, bad decisions, abuses, uh, divisions, etc. Building up, building up, building up, building up. And what started 150 years ago sometimes, 149 years in, it still doesn't look like it's enough to cause the real explosion. But that one straw lands on the camel. And you thought, man, that camel can handle a lot more straw. Turns out there was one. Broke the back, camel goes down. And the more I look at things, and the more I think about how I personally feel, 
Because honest to God, I, right now I feel if Texas could walk away peacefully and we could just, and, and, and everybody would be okay with it, we'd just be able to work it out for ourselves and we could just say, you know what? It's been a good run for about 150 years. But we do not want to be part of what you're doing anymore. I'd probably be really quick on top of that. I really would. Like saying, yeah, I think this is a good thing for Texas anyway. But, you know, I'm thinking of me. I'm thinking of my grandkids. I'm thinking about my children. I'm thinking about my wife. I'm not thinking about you in New Jersey with that. I'm not saying it would be good for you in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or Alabama or Louisiana or whatever. I, I don't know that it would. So you also have to think about where where should you be if this happens? What part of the country do you want to be in? And I'm going to tell you, I don't have an answer from a standpoint of you want to be in one of the places most likely to go away and leave. Because what if what if the federal government decides we're not going to let you? What if it's, um, here? okay, you want us to see we consider that treason and here come the troops. Here come the bombers. Is that tenable today? I don't know, but it's possible. What if the solution is, oh, you guys want to... <laughs> You want to do this? Okay. We're not going to bomb you, but what about if it becomes a, a massive embargo by the largest military in the world of anybody that tries to walk away? Like, don't don't think that, like, if this happens, like, everything's just sunshine and lollipops if you're in one of the, if, if you, you know, there, you can be, you can be Estonia or Ukraine or you can be Belarus. You don't know. You don't know what you're going to be. What if it happens peacefully, but your your government of your new state, region, republic, country, whatever you call it, ends up being worse? And you actually end up with less recourse. We don't know. So I think that that's something that, you know, with strategic location, relocation, we all have to think about. But I'll tell you this. The people that did the best in all the places this happened with the Soviet Union falling apart lived in self-sufficient communities not in major urban areas. Especially while, even places where it got pretty cool to live in some of these cities in these satellite republics. Like, when it first happened, the old lady that made some moonshine and, and, and ran her little Dasha garden and stuff did pretty well no matter where she was. So staying away from the urban shitholes, guys, has always been good advice. That This just makes it more so. And I think the last thing is what resources do you need if this happens? And I think the answer is all of them that you depend on. So it's just another reason to up your prepping needs. So if this never, if this never happens, you should be prepared. But if this happens, you really should be prepared. And I just wanted to kind of put this in, in your minds today and let you think about it, because many of you have a long weekend like I do coming up. It's a good thing to think about. It's a bad thing that can happen, but it's a good thing to be thinking about. Because... If it happens and it hits you unaware, it's really going to hurt you. If it doesn't happen, but you at least entertain the idea that it's possible, and you take whatever steps you could to mitigate it occurring, your life will be a hell of a lot more stable for whatever is going to happen. Because I will tell you this, if, if the stuff we're talking about today directly never happens, the next 20 years in the world is going to be an ass-kicking anyway. The Great Reset is real. They're not going to stop and go home and go away because you posted a meme. 
We are going through a period of transition of technology, transition of economy, transition of even if the United States stays together, our status as being the leader in the world, even if we stay number one, the gap is going to close hard. And if you have a number one, a number two, and a number three that are really close, number one's got a decent gap on two and three, but two and three work together as one, guess what? Sure, the leaderboard still says USA, but if it's China and Russia working together and maybe the Brazilians and the Indians, you see what I'm saying? I've been talking about that a long time. A long time. It's time to take this flux, however it turns out, seriously, and do not think for a minute that the U.S. cannot do exactly what the USSR did. Don't think it's not possible. It totally is. And notice that everyone here, when asked... What are the odds that it happens in the next 150 years? Everyone's answer was 85% or higher. So all we're talking about is a timeline. And when you say not during my time, but within the next 150 years, no matter how hard you try, there's no way you've completely removed your personal bias from that. With that, we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.